Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 126 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Greetings. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Better greetings. Mm-hmm. Guys, can we make it a New Year's resolution that next year you guys don't fight in the intro, Dylan? I mean, I was going to say, I have not done anything to <laughs> encourage this except for saying hello. Only one of us has to make a New Year's resolution. I've encouraged it even less. <laughs> Dylan, you got to bring it down. I will say on uh, Humboldt Hot Air, I recently aired a very old episode of ours, a mini-sode, uh, which was called Bookish Baby Shower. And oh, it was yeah. right at the beginning. It's a great episode, Pages. Check it out. And Dylan was one-upping Andrew even then. And even then, very close to the beginning, Andrew was not feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, how do you choose which ones you air? Are you like picking out the best ones? I'm doing it kind of back to front. I actually don't air episodes anymore. I didn't intend for this to become a plug for Humboldt Hot Air, but it's going to be now. (laughs) I used to do something boring, which is every new release date, I would play the new episode and I'm still doing that and that's not boring. But now every other week when we're not doing a new episode, I am doing my own thing. I'm reading some short stories aloud. I'm doing like little mini book reviews on what I'm reading outside of the podcast. I'm playing some music. So if you want to check it out, every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., HumboldtHotAir.org. Toby, are you going solo? That sounds like a competing podcast. I mean, uh, well, you know, I've got some uh, some real groundswell uh, support. And uh, the, I will say the promotions and the sponsorships are rolling in. So it's nice to finally make some money. Wow. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. This I, I think I couldn't be less paid. People do love on Instagram your trash book reviews. You got a lot of love for the last post. Street book reviews. Please. Please, trash Bailey. Book. Street book reviews. <laughs> trash. How Filthy dare you? garbage review Sorry. book. Stinking putrescent reviews. Maybe you're like the Harry Styles of our group. Who goes solo? Harry Styles? Yeah. Justin Timberlake. Beyonce. Ginger. Watermelon Maybe that's not sugar. A good one. <laughs> I'm the most basic one. Who's the most basic? I don't even you know. You Joe Jonas. Wait, doesn't that mean I get married to Sophie Turner? Oh. Mm. I think you're more of a, a sporty spice, Bailey. You got attitude. Oh, okay. All right. Um, guys, I'm still in Maine. I am recording the podcast alone, staring at a wall. Um, how are you guys? Where are you in the world, Andrew? I'm in Woodstock, New York. I was about to say Woodstock, New York City. Just Woodstock, New York. Yep, I heard that coming. Ooh. Andrew, tell us, you texted me last night that you had um, read an audiobook on the way home that was scary, and then you got freaked out when you were in your house. Can you can you share the story with Pages? I was reading an audiobook on the drive. I was driving from Maine to Woodstock, and I was reading um, The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Oh. And I thought it was just like a thriller, sort of like a crime is going on whodunit, but it's got like some spooky elements to it. So it was odd to arrive alone mm. to a house in the woods with no lights um, oh, yeah. <laughs> after like talking about getting lost in like the peat bogs of ireland mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you recommend the book i haven't finished it yet but so far i recommend it nice i liked it i thought it was fun andrew what do you do or toby the group when you're in that place and you want to get out of it like do you watch like videos of puppies or something on haunted puppies <laughs> no i um i switched over to a soccer podcast which yep. was less high pressure yeah i would that's funny because my advice i think would be the exact same some kind of lighthearted podcast i hate to pigeonhole myself even more but it's probably going to be a D&D podcast. <laughs> There's nothing uh, less scary than a lighthearted D&D podcast. Or, you know, a lighthearted book review podcast, if you're ever scared of books. That's true. Yes. Sorry. Uh, I listened to old episodes of the two read list over and over again. <laughs> 
Only the parts where I'm speaking, though. I have special edited versions where it's just me. Would be a really funny episode, just you talking to yourself. Um, Guys, I have another confession, which is not shame. I have been very good (laughs) and I have no shame. So let's get that out of the way. Does anybody have any shame? Nope. None for me. Thanks. Okay, great. So (laughs) then my shame, which is not buying a book related, is that there was a post on on Bookstagram and I can't tell if it's real or fake, like if it's an onion thing or if it's real. Mm. And I'm wondering if you if you guys can help me. Okay. so the post said something like, all right, it's the end of the year wrap up time. It was like Goodwill, you know, the thrift store lists its top 10 most donated books. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of our podcast is do we keep our books? But then like Mm -hmm. the number one was a waterlogged hardcover of Breaking Dawn by Stephanie Meyer. And I was like, that seems specific. Yeah. That sounds like a joke to me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think you got played. Yeah, and this is no shade to Goodwills that I visited, but they don't seem to have a detailed, like, Dewey Decimal system for the books that they carry in their shelves. It's that more is like fair. they are there, and they're usually pretty bad. I, I like Goodwill. I like visiting a Goodwill, but usually the book selection is pretty poor. I think it's because if you have a good book at all, maybe you try and sell it to a secondhand store or, like, put it in a little free library. I think Goodwill is for the books that you're, like, you know, not worth doing anything but throwing in a card box. Yeah. The trash books. No, no. <laughs> um, I have a very enjoyable experience that I think some of our pages might relate to. Um, I've mentioned before that I am pretty much always reading two books at once. I am reading a book with my eyeballs um, on the iPad or, you know, in physical copy, and I'm reading one through audiobook. And almost always there is one that I'm preferring usually Mm -hmm. vastly preferring out of the two. But every once in a while, I hit this sweet spot where I'm both books that I'm reading, I'm enjoying like a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, And it's happening to me now. So I'm happy to report that. Ooh. What's the, um, what are they both non-podcast? Can you tell us? They are both non-podcast. I can tell you. I'm so glad you asked. Um, I'm reading, oh man, I should have practiced his name, but he's a best-selling author, so he can deal with it. I'm reading Lincoln Highway by Amor Towles, I think his name is. Um, He wrote Mm -hmm. A Gentleman in Moscow and I think something else as well. Um, And he is really good. It's very like uh, Americana, very, I don't want to say corny because I'm enjoying it, but it's very emotional. But it's an emotional in a way that I'm connecting to. That's good. I I read Rules of Civility by him and I did not love it, but most everybody does. So Yeah, I I remember not reading it because you said it was not good. Always listen to me. I always do. Um, And then I'm also reading a, a horror book called The Terror by Dan Simmons. And Dan Simmons is a guy I really enjoy. He wrote Hyperion, which is like one of my favorite sci-fi books of all time. And he's an interesting author because basically from what I've heard, he just goes through genre by genre and wins the award for that genre. Like... um, (laughs) Hyperion was his first sci-fi book and it won like the Hugo and the Nebula and then this the terror won like whatever horror award there is and he's won the mystery award he basically just goes and like ticks them off and wins every award um and yeah this one is really good it's about this expedition in 1845 to find the Northwest Passage so that's coming from England and going above Canada in the kind of crazy polar stuff up there all the way to Alaska and uh it takes place on this ship that's like stuck in the ice for like six months and they just have to sit there and wait and hope that the ice unfreezes in the summer. And then there's like something out on the ice that's stalking them. It's really cool. 
Oh, is it the thing? Yeah, is this the TV show? <laughs> um, I think they did turn it into a TV show. Is Kurt Russell in it? Yeah, uh, funnily enough, this English gentleman's name is Kurt Russell. Sir Kurt Russell. <laughs> what would be the book equivalent of an EGOT? So it would be like the Nobel, oh. the Pulitzer. Like, I wonder if we could come up with Hugo an acronym. Nebula. Hugo Nebula. There's no vowels. National Book Award. And a five-star review on the to-read list. <laughs> So just a bunch of consonants in a row. (laughs) Well, there's a missed opportunity there because I feel like, you know, our friend Joyce Carol Oates would probably get that. So Joyce, call your agent. Joyce. Toby, I am also usually reading a book with my eyes and my ears at the same time. And one of my favorite mm-hmm. things is when you finish both on the same day and then you get to Ooh. get two new ones. Anyway. Yeah, that is exciting. Small victories. I know. I've, I've known that pleasure, but few times in my life, but it is uh, a pinnacle indeed. <laughs> So, Pedro's, before we go into our reviews, a little reminder, if you don't already have this marked on your calendar, but our next episode will be a very special episode. It will be our year-end review podcast called The Bookends. The Bookends. Awards. Which we uh, do every year where we give out some awards, some positive, some negative. We play a few extra yeah. games and we play the most dangerous game of all, Russian Booklet. Is that what it's Russian, called, Dylan? Mm-hmm. Russian Roulist. Russian Roulist list in which each of us submit the book we least want to read and play a game uh, that randomly (laughs) chooses which one of us will have to uh, be in a lot of pain for a month or so. So tune in. Uh, It'll be a little different. We won't be doing any reviews, um, but we will be having a lot of fun. So tune in then. Yeah. And uh, I remember last year, Bailey, you lost the first round of Russian Roulette and had to read Les Mis. Got to read Les Mis, excuse me. Yes. But, you know, I can't read Les Mis again. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like there's no way I could lose twice in a row. It's a random game, Bailey. (laughs) Oh, no, Bailey. Oh, no. I've just jinxed myself. So, Pedro's tune in. In the meantime, Toby, I heard that you found a weird piece of jewelry from a place. Ooh. What an intro. What an intro. Um, Well, I didn't. I read a freaking book. Um, No jewelry involved. Um, I read The Amulet of Samarkand by Jonathan Stroud. Amulet. Jewelry. No cheers. No whoop whoop. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, Uh, Gin. Ginny. Ginny. He's like a gin, right? Thank you. There we go. Um, Okay. Here we go. Here is my logline. Demons, imps, ginny, and other hellish creatures abound in Jonathan Stroud's The Amulet of Samarkand, a charming an exceptionally well-crafted world in which magicians in modern-day England control society at large by virtue of their knowledge and mastery of demonic entities. Ooh, sounds a little spooky. Is it like evil Pokemon? Ooh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> do you know what? I uh, I didn't think of it that way, but it kind of is. It kind of is. Wow. Good luck line, Bailey. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bailey. Basilbub, I choose you. <laughs> All right, here we go. Yeah, so I, as I mentioned, I think, on last episode of the episode before, I was a little thrown to find out that this is a children's book or maybe a middle grade book. Um, I had chosen it because I kind of heard mutterings of it on like this or that forum and like referred to positively. So I was like, I'll check it out. Um, so I was a little thrown. I was like, oh, it's a middle grade book. I, you know, I nothing against middle grade books, but you know, they're not like, they don't get my engine going. So I had like lower expectations going into this. Um, and I also wondered like, why hadn't I read this when I was a kid? I, you know, it sounds like it's up my alley. 
And then I found out it was published in 2003 when I was in high school and I began to feel old. Whoa, the cover makes it look like it's from the 90s. It really does, doesn't it? I guess they hadn't figured out their, you know, early aughts style yet. <laughs> it's true. So right from the beginning, we are introduced to Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is who this trilogy is named after. It's called the Bartimaeus Trilogy. And he is a Ginny who is being summoned by a young boy to his consternation. Immediately through the first page, through the first scene, we've got a really great tone. It's Bartimaeus, his first person. He's really clever. He's really wry and sarcastic and funny. And yeah, he's just a, right away a great person, excuse me, a great genie that you want to spend time with. It really gets going quick. He's been summoned um, because this kid knows his name. And that's kind of one of the foundational aspects of this world. If you know someone's name, you have them under your power. That's one of the first fun rules of this world. The kid has summoned Bartimaeus to perform a task for him, which is basically how magic works in this world. Magicians summon demons, you know, entities and command them to do stuff. They don't really have any magic of their own control, but they command demons to do stuff for them, which is a really cool system, I think. Pokemon. Yeah. So wait, Pokemon, thank you. in yes. this world, could I just say, hey, Toby, I know your name. Now you have to uh, make me some beef bourguignon. Yeah. But you'd first have to like draw like a, a pentagram around yourself and then you'd have to summon me Done. into my pentagram. You'd have. Okay. okay. Yeah, I know you already have one. <laughs> um, so the task that this kid wants Bartimaeus to do is to steal the amulet of Samarkand from another magician, um, a much older and much more powerful magician. Bartimaeus immediately kind of gives the kid some lip and he says, this is a bad idea. You don't know what you're doing. You're in over your head. Uh, but the kid says, you know, how dare you, demon? Obey me. Um, and he's got to do it. He's under, you know, he's under this kid's command. And that is, um, that's the beginning. And you honestly, you can't ask for a much more fun beginning than that. It really throws you into it. You're intrigued. This is a fun voice. It's an interesting proposition. You're just off to the races. Then Jonathan Stroud goes back a little bit in time. He introduces us to the other half of the story. It's alternating chapters or alternating every couple chapters, two or three in Bartimaeus's voice. And the other ones are third person about Nathaniel, who's the boy who summoned him. Gotcha. Nathaniel is how we kind of learn more about the magical world. World. It's basically this kind of top heavy aristocracy of magicians who dominates every single position of power. Everyone in the government is a magician of a certain caliber. So they and they're very kind of like they, they spurn the common people. They have a lot of disdain for the common person and they're kind of obsessed with themselves and self-satisfied. And they the populace in general doesn't really know that magicians don't do their own magic. <laughs> they you know don't know they rely on demons. It's kind of a trick they're playing on everyone. And you can already see like these it's such a fun setup. The rules are so fun and it's really well crafted. There's no kind of like loopholes or shoddiness. I think that sometimes with middle grade literature or younger grade literature, people feel like it's okay to play fast and loose with the rules of how the world works, especially magic systems. And Jonathan Stroud doesn't do that at all. Um, I really like a well-constructed magic system and this is a very well-constructed magic system that's also ripe with like conflict and fun. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah. So what are the, what are the Pikachus and the Mr. Mimes of this story? <laughs> well, I would say probably Bartimaeus is Pikachu because he's like the one that you like the most. Um, and he is, it's actually a pretty good analogy for Pikachu because he's like middle, like top middle of the power range. You know, he's not the most powerful being out there, but he's no slouch. Like there's mm -hmm. imps and goblins are like little, I don't even know. What's a bad Pokemon? What's a stinky Pokemon? Rattata. Ghastly. Yeah, right. Yes. The Rattatas of the world. Sorry, Bailey. Um, are like imps and they can do like minor 
era stuff, but if you really want some stuff done, you got to go with Pikachu, um, aka Bartimaeus. Ooh. It may sound like I'm already talking about my elves, but now I'm going to go into my official elves. Ooh, official. Wait, and elves are like Flareons in this world? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You got it. Mm-hmm. How many Pokemon can we name? All of them. <laughs> 152? Is that how many there are in the original? Whatever. This is not a Pokemon podcast. Those exist. Um, so my elves. Uh, first of all, I've already mentioned him, but I'm going to go double down. Bartimaeus is a huge elf. He's funny and he's fun, as I've already mentioned, but he also has an emotional core to him. I think there's a version of this book out there where Bartimaeus is just kind of a funny jerk. But very quickly, you begin to feel pretty sorry for Bartimaeus and kind of the demons in general. They're pretty much at the beck and call of these magicians who are all jerks. And he has a lot of patience with Nathaniel throughout the story, which is, you know, it becomes harder and harder to have patience with Nathaniel, as I'll get to quickly. Um, And there's also these kind of cute hints to a kind of a a really deep friendship that Bartimaeus had with a boy like 2000 years ago back in history. And they're kind of teased at, and I bet you get more of it later in the trilogy, but you just get hints of it in this one. And it's very, I don't know, it gives him a kind of tenderness and he's not sappy or kind really, but he is certainly a good person, a good being. And I think that that line that Jonathan Stroud walks where it's like, he's not a sap, he's not betraying his nature as like a demonic person, uh, but he is quite like tender and emotional. And I think it's great. Awesome. Um, I also think Nathaniel is another elf. Nathaniel, the boy, is also well drawn. Um, but my main compliment about him is that he's a little stinky brat. <laughs> And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Oh, yes. He's supposed to be a product of this society, which is super twisted, super messed up. And he doesn't shy away from showing him as kind of a proud and impetuous person who he would be. You know, he's told he's better than everyone else in this society. He is taken away from his parents at the age of like nine and given to a magician forever. Like his parents sell him to the magician. That's pretty brutal. He is uh, proud. He's impetuous. He's selfish and self-centered. And he doesn't quite stray into really hateable territory, um, which is good because then it's kind of hard to read about a character like that. But he comes real close to it. And I think, again, there is a worse version of this book where Nathaniel's just a sweet kid and he's a victim of the blah, 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 whatever. No, like Stroud really shows how, you know, and this kid needs to be pretty brash and self-centered to do the thing he does, which is, you know, summon Bartimaeus and try and do all this crazy stuff. So I really like Nathaniel. Nice. My last elf is that the world at large is really well put together. Um, You've already heard a lot about how it works. And I'll just say the overall tone of this kind of goes back and forth between Terry Pratchett style humor and then kind of, I would think like Philip Pullman style drama where, you know, it goes back and forth. There's some really intense emotional moments and then there's a lot of humor. But then, you know, I mentioned those just as comparison. He has his own voice and his own style. And I think it works really, really well. You're intriguing me here, Toby. (laughs) Well, there we go. Um, Well, then, and I will mention now my only orc. I've only got one orc. Are you ready? And orcs are like um, licky tongues. Coughing. Mm, that's pretty good, Bailey. I'm going to give this one to Bailey. Sorry, Andrew. Ah, dang um, Coughing. Coughing. <laughs> the only orc I have is that this book came out in 2003, but it reads like a book that came out in 1993. And by that, I mean, it feels so, so strongly like this is a book for boys. Like when I was a kid, <laughs> I'd go in the I'd go in the bookstore and they'd say, oh, this is a good one for boys. You know what I mean? You know the kind of feeling I'm talking about? You know, the big boy books, they live over here. <laughs> exactly. This one's blue. Pretty much. Yeah. Where it's like all of the magic 
magicians with the exception of one are men. Most of the characters in this are men. There's two women who are, you know, the women we get most pictured are for sure like maternal figures. And then there's, you know, two other minor characters who are women who have something more interesting going on, but they are super minor. I think one of them, maybe both of them will have bigger places later in the trilogy, but this just definitely felt like super gendered. And I can see reading it. If I did not identify with Nathaniel when I was a kid, I would see maybe reading this and not feeling like like it was a story that I could really identify with. And so that would be, you know, a bummer. And, and I'm surprised that it came out in 2003. That being said, um, it doesn't feel malicious in any way. It just feels like a bit of an oversight that I think maybe today would be addressed a little bit more. But overall, I mean, this book was fantastic. I really, really liked it. I'm probably going to read the rest of the trilogy. Five freaking stars. <gasps> Heck yeah. Pikachu. I choo-choo-choose you. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, that's awesome. I did not expect that. I, I don't know if maybe this would be your most unexpected book of the year. Who knows? Very cool. Uh, Andrew, mm. do you have any facts on, on this man who writes for boys? This man. This man boy. <laughs> oh, yes. I have some facts on this man boy, Jonathan Stroud. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, Jonathan. Slander. <laughs> Actually, so Jonathan Stroud may be the easiest author we have ever had in terms of researching. That's because I didn't do any research. His bio on his website is straight up written the way we would write like the breakdown of facts. There's a section that's like a short biography nice. and then he breaks down his like writing routine and that's Good what job, I would typically Jonathan. cover. So that's what I'll be giving you today. So I'll credit here to Jonathan Stroud with a little bit of uh, notes from me along the way. Did a little more research for our next author. So Is Jonathan Stroud a Pedro? He might oh, be. My word. Uh, this is like when I went through TSA and they held up my tray and said, look, this is how you're supposed to do it. And I was like, gold star. <laughs> this is the same, right? Really? That happened to you? Yeah. Yeah. That happened <laughs> on my last. I've told Andrew the story like six times because I was so proud. He's like, you're supposed to take your iPad out like this. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, you're under arrest. What are you hiding? <laughs> Well, then, okay, I'm just going to finish the story real quick. Oh, here we go. I got my bag pulled because it was filled with puzzles. And the man <laughs> looking through it was very confused. And he couldn't open them. And he was like, uh, I'm just going to wipe them down. He's like, is this a hobby or something? And I'm like, yeah. Anyway, Jonathan Stroud. <laughs> All right, so straight into Jonathan Stroud's words. I'll let you know when his sentence ends and, and mine begin. But here we go. <laughs> I was born in Bedford, England on 27th October 1970. When I was six, my family moved to St. Albans near London, which is where I grew up. From very early on, I enjoyed scribing stories and drawing. And for a long time, the two sides were equally balanced. Pictures interested me as much as words. Between the ages of seven and nine, I was often ill and spent long periods in hospital and home in bed. During this time, I escaped from boredom and frustration by reading fear Curiously. Books littered my bedroom like bones in a lion's cave. I tended to mm. enjoy stories of magical adventure more than ones about real life. And I think this was because they provided a more complete escape. Around this time, I fell in love with fantasy. How do you read furiously? Like he's just sitting angry like, God. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, you're married to Bailey. I'm sure you've seen it. That is true, actually. Weird. <laughs> Moving on. Throughout my school years, I experimented with different <laughs> kinds of writing, often illustrated. I tried comics, game books, board games, and later poems and plays. Without being entirely aware of it, I was searching for the kind of writing that suited me best. Meanwhile, I was getting more and more interested in other people's writing. Finally, I went to York University to read English literature. I love that phrasing of like studying. There's like, I read English literature because it just sounds like you went to college and read some books. Yeah, that's a Britishism for the for us US pages. Uh, like many English graduates, I left university without a clue what to do. 
too real. Um, but I got an editorial <laughs> job at Walker Books in London and began to learn about children's books. For several years, I worked as an editor, helping other authors with their idea and text, consulting with designers and artists about the visual side, and helping to create books of many kinds. I did several puzzle books for Walker and began working on a novel too. When Buried Fire was published in 1999, I knew I had found what I truly wanted to do, but it took until 2001 before I finally took the plunge, gave up being an editor, and tried to write full-time. The same year, I married Gina, and we now have a daughter called Isabel, an older son called Arthur, and a baby boy called Louis. Most days I go to my study and shut myself away from the whole world while I write, but I enjoy doing as many events and author visits as possible. It's essential that a writer reminds himself who he's writing for. And so that's his little bio. This is a little brief note from me. Uh, he's most famous for two series, the uh, Bartemius Sequence, which is what Toby read the first book from, uh, The Amulet of Semerkant. It has, I think, four books in total. Um, so you have those to look forward to, Toby. I thought it was a trilogy. Whoops. Another series uh, that he wrote is called the Lockwood & Co. Children's Series. It appears to be about sort of uh, magical detectives. And there's an adaptation of this premiering on Netflix in late January. So you can watch Stroud's Whoa. work on the flicks. Um, he also started a new series, uh, which has two books so far, called The Outlaws, Scarlet and & Brown. And it's like sort of a heist series. Love it. His wife, Gina. She works as a children's book illustrator. So they're kind of a power couple. Hmm. Oh, I wonder if she drew the, the grinning, hideous face of Bartimaeus on the the edition that I read. Certainly hope so. I can dream. Don't tell me if that's not true, Andrew. I don't want to know. <laughs> Real quick, I just want to run through his self-described routine of writing um, because he broke yes. it all down for you folks. Um, he says that two-thirds of his working year is in spent in solitary confinement in his study where he does all his writing. Uh, he aims to do 20 pages a week when he's in full swing. All right, here we go, swing. guys. Buckle the heck up. <laughs> 9.30 a.m. Arrive at the office. Various delaying tactics, including emails, cups of tea, scratching chin, staring slackjaw out of window, etc. 10 a.m. Manuscript sitting on desk catches eye. Last swig of tea. Take manuscript. Sift through. Reread yesterday's work. Making odd adjustments. Bring up book on computer. Place cursor at end of last sentence and prepare for action. 10.23 a.m. Erase 15th attempt at first line of day and go for another cup of tea. 10.30. Revived. First line of the day is successfully written. Things then begin to speed up. 11 a.m. Hitting stride. Best time of the day for writing. Fingers whirring on the keys. Now we, all we need is no disturbance. 11.01. Phone rings. Answer it. Any of A, my <laughs> agent, B, my publisher, C, a bloke from Best Kitchens offering a free estimate for entirely refitting a lovely stainless chrome countertop. And variously polite. <laughs> conversation ends. Disconnect phone from wall. 1 p.m. <laughs> lunch. By now on a good day, I have maybe two to three new A4 pages typed and printed. In any case, lunch is long awaited since have been subsisting on fruit and chocolate biscuits all morning and am starving. Starving, eat lunch, read paper, nip to shops to post letters, check email again, 1.30 to 2, back to work with a cup of tea. Cup of tea is good indicator of how well things are going. If writing well, we'll forget it entirely and let it go cold. Full cup with congealing milk equals happy author. Now, <laughs> I know you're all worried because this is the dark night of the soul. 2 to 4 p.m., <laughs> dangerous times, dog days of the afternoon, worst time for my writing, sleepy, comfortable, full of lunch, biorhythms are low, yep. a struggle, can only plow onwards fueled by more biscuits. I feel like biorhythms are low is like a descriptor of my entire adult life. <laughs> Fair. Um, four, biorhythms perk up. Hooray. Writing gets easier again. Hopefully <laughs> homing in on the target in all capitals for the which is five pages. Depending on current zest, we'll either shoot past target contemptuously, heading to the promised land of six to seven pages, or B, totter to the bottom of page five, print it out without looking and run from the building. Other times won't even make it that far. And then he details briefly like, you know, seeing his family and being happy for a minute, but that's not what we're here for. Boo. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> nice. 
And that is Jonathan Stroud. Thanks for doing the work for us, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, Jonathan, I find you very relatable, and I'm sorry I called you a man boy earlier. He can handle it. <laughs> the Amulet of Samarkin by Jonathan Stroud. Five stars. Five pentagrams. Bailey, speaking of dream worlds of magic and stories that take you away, I really liked this book. Did you? Did you read a book this week? Ooh, interesting transition. Yes, I did read a book this week. I read a book that's a lot of people's favorite. It's called The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. One of the reasons why I got this book from a library book sale um, is that a lot of people had read it and loved it. I know it was really popular Mm -hmm. in book clubs. I know that a lot of people read it in school, um, but I think maybe I'm too too old or something, but it didn't, it wasn't an option in my school. Yeah. You you would have been like a junior in high school when this came out. Okay. Yeah. And so I was in, you know, AP English and well, maybe it might've been an AP book anyway. Are you just using this as an excuse to remind us that you did AP English? Yeah. Yeah, That felt like it was a bit of a stretch. Well, I'll use it as an excuse to say I did better than Bailey in AP English. Yes, yes. I did not do well on the AP test. It's fine. I'm not bitter about it anyway. Well, the TSA reminded me that I didn't take my water out of my water bottle last time I flew, so they threatened (laughs) to throw it away. Look, we don't all go through AP airport security. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Okay, so it passed me by as a book. And then quickly, maybe my sophomore or junior year of college, it came out as a movie, which I saw and I did not like the movie. And I think that turned me off of the book. And so I finally picked it up from a library book sale and thought, let's give it a shot. This isn't fair that you haven't read it. But I will say that I was really worried. I was dreading it because of the movie. So don't, don't, don't let this happen to you, Pedros. For those of you who don't know, Uh, The Kite Runner um, follows Amir. He is a young boy growing up in Afghanistan during the monarchy. He's growing up in this time of peace and, well, at least for him, he comes from a very privileged home, stability and beauty um, that he spends most of his time with his servant son, Hassan. Um, And Hassan comes from um, an underrepresented ethnic group um, that is discriminated against and mostly um, pitted as um, mostly servants at the time in Afghanistan. Um, And so although Amir really loves Hassan, he feels awkward about sort of like being friends with him in public. Um, So a lot of their lovely idyllic moments happen when they're just playing by themselves. They climb up uh, mountains and look, uh, climb trees. They also obviously, based on the title, do kite races. um, And this whole elaborate kite sport that I had not heard where people cut each other's kites and then you run to get the kite that you killed. um, And that's the kite runner. So that's Hassan is the kite runner because he's the one that runs and gets the kite after it's cut down. Anyway, that's where the novel starts. And well, actually, that's not true. It starts with Amir in California as a grown man looking back on this. Um, And he wants to atone for something that happened between him and Hassan, which you'll find out pretty quickly. And then the story follows Amir's attempt to atone for how he treated Hassan in the past and brings it up to almost modern day. Um, Another one of the themes is Amir's relationship with his father, who he calls Baba, And a lot of his motivation is to get Baba to respect him, to love him. He feels like his father doesn't um, appreciate him because he's not traditionally masculine, also because Amir's mother died during um, childbirth. And Amir's a bit jealous of Hassan, who seems to get his father's positive attention. So that's another of the big themes of the book. I'm not going to get too far into it because it'll start spoiling stuff. So that's that's the concept. I'm going to go into my elves and orcs right away. Your Raichus and your Charizards? I think it was Flareons and Coughing. My Flareons, um, I right away 
I, as soon as I started reading it, kind of thought, why was I dreading this? This book is perfectly fine. In terms of readability, like it's a very quick read. I found it pretty engrossing. Mm -hmm. You're kind of drawn in by what's going to happen. The pages fly by. I read it pretty quickly. And I thought in general, there were some beautifully written parts. I also really liked the perspective on Afghanistan before, you know, the Taliban and the wars, which is what sort of I grew Mm -hmm. up with. And so it gave me another picture of like, obviously it wasn't always like this. Don't assume that, you know, the Middle East is always dangerous and all that. And so I liked that perspective. Yeah. I remember at the time that was kind of like when this came out, that was the big thing about this book. The big promotional thing was like the picture of Afghanistan that it would give you that was different than what was in the news. Yeah. But then, so that kind of leads into one of my orcs, which is that, again, in general, I really liked that. However, I think parts of it feel very, how can I say this, made for a Western audience, sort of like Mm. dumbing down some of the conflicts. Um, I'll say specifically, there is a character, Asif, who is the big bad, and he is almost like cartoonishly villainous to the point where it's like one of his main things is that he loves Hitler. It's like, okay, we get it. This is a terrible guy. And I just thought like, hmm, it it, it was kind of making kind of being ham-fisted in its treatment of it. Like, there's bad guys, but also good guys. And I just felt like, no, I get it. I can be a little more nuanced than this. Mm. On the other hand, I found I found it hard to sympathize with Amir, the lead character, because I found him to be so frustrating in his um, passivity and his cowardice. I felt like it's obvious that he's going to have a redemption, because otherwise, why would people like this book? But I felt like the redemption, he, he was kind of forced into it. And were it not for other people's pressure, he might have just lived his life as a coward. So that, so I guess that... <laughs> as a stinking coward. <laughs> Pages, you have no idea how many times I've been with Bailey in the public and she's just turned on someone and she's like, you coward. <laughs> But I mean, I'm sure you guys remember, like, even from the movie, there are certain scenes that I remember. And I'm just like, what are you doing, man? Why are you just sitting there? You're asking a lot of us from like books we read in high school. Like, surely you remember these yeah. plot points. Like, d- totally. I didn't see this movie. And to show you how much I remember reading this book, when you said the thing about the kites, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's like one of the main things in the book. So that's how well I remember this book. Well, OK. But you probably remember what Amir nope. has to atone for. No. Okay. I do. Andrew does. Okay. So anyway, so there were a lot of great things about this book. It was a really quick read. I was really into it. I was enjoying it and understanding why people enjoyed it. But then near the end, I started to get frustrated because of this black or white thinking. And there were a lot of coincidences that kept happening that were too neat for me and like kind of on the nose, like running into people like out of the millions of people you could run into it, somebody from your past, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I was also going to say you had a problem with the reeking, stinking cowardice of Amir and just had really had a hard time dealing with that. Well, yeah, exactly. So so like, I would say that as I started reading it, I was like, this might be a five star for me. I get it. I understand why people like it. But in the end, okay, take this with a grain of salt. I thought, oh, I understand why this book is taught in high schools because I thought mm-hmm. it was like pretty, like the process of analyzing it is not that difficult <laughs> of like, mm-hmm. oh, th- this is paralleled. In, you know, this thing from the beginning is paralleled in the end. Anyway, all this to say that I was surprised by how much I liked this book in the beginning because I thought 
thought it was going to be kind of soft. And so I was into it. But then near the end, I was like, this is kind of soft. And it is kind of a, I could imagine myself teaching this to kids to teach them about like framing devices or um, metaphor, Mm -hmm. but it's like not that nuanced. So ultimately I'm going to give it four stars Mm. and please don't hate me. Those who love this book, I would be open to reading more books by Hosseini, but this one, I just thought it was a little too neat in the end. What, what was your memory of this book? Anyone? Well, first of all, four stars is totally a fine reading for it. And I did read this like between junior and senior year of high school. So I can't say that I'm like, was super sophisticated in like the analysis that you're giving it. I'm reading it now. I could see having the same thing. So I'm not mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I, I have a special affection for this book because it was one of the first like contemporary-ish novels I read and really enjoyed. Because before that, it was like high mm-hmm. school, either reading more like young adult stuff or reading like the classics we were forced to. So that's why I have some special affection for this book. But I'm sure I would basically agree with your review if I reread it now. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't yell coward as much. Yeah, <laughs> we know none of us would. I feel very shaky giving it a review because we're reaching back into the realms where like I just have vague impressions. But my vague impression uh, is not super positive. I just remember being like, what's the big deal? And I probably gave it like a three star. Uh, but that's based okay. on, I mean, so, so long ago. I, I wouldn't even stand by that because who knows what I would feel about it when I read it today. I would say if you are if you haven't read it and you're considering it, it's worth reading. Definitely read it and, you know, sound off in the comments. Let me know what you thought. And Bailey, please don't call me a coward for not standing by my my uh, my review. You're a coward. Oh. Not true. I lied. I lied. But Andrew, do you have any facts? I do. Want to oh, hear? Oh, he does. Yeah. And these are classic. Kyle didn't write all these for me. <laughs> so, uh, Khaled Hosseini was born on March 4th, 1965 in Kabul. He is the eldest of five children and his father worked as a diplomat and his mother was a Persian language instructor. His family lived in a well-to-do part of Kabul where, yes, one of his favorite activities was flying kites. Mm. And so there's some similarities between him and Amir in terms of like demographics. I was going to say a lot of it, I was wondering how much his life paralleled Amir's, but go ahead. It is not a direct parallel by any means. And okay. he's never said it was, but I think the biggest similarity is just sort of where he would have been growing up, basically like where he was on sort of the class scale in Kabul. Gotcha. One of the plot points is that Amir becomes a famous writer. And I was like, that always makes me wonder like how much of this is is real, but. This was his first book before he'd ever written anything else. So I don't think he was writing from experience there. Uh, So they moved around a bit with his father being a diplomat and he went to Iran for a while, uh, then back to Kabul um, before his father got posted to Paris, which was apparently a very like sought after position. However, while they were living there, the political situation in Afghanistan changed dramatically. So there was the start of the Soviet-Afghan war, communist rebellion. Uh, His father sought asylum in the U.S. and um, was granted and his family all relocated to San Jose, California. They did not live in the Winchester Mystery House, sadly. So they moved um, to Northern California. He didn't speak any English when he arrived and talks about having crazy culture shock, understandably, because beyond just like not speaking English and moving to this new country, like he was getting news from home that like people he knew were in prison or had disappeared because he was of the like demographic that was getting persecuted by the the new leadership in Afghanistan. Mm. Wild. Moving on to his sort of writing career, his early influences, he said, are Persian poetry, uh, including Rumi and Hafez as well as some translated copies of like classic children's books he had, uh, in particular, Jack London's White Fang and Alice in Wonderland. He also Ooh. particularly calls out the music of Ahmad Zahir, who he calls the Afghan Elvis. 
Maybe you know this part, but I still think it's interesting. Uh, he went on to attend Santa Clara University, followed by medical school at UCSD, and then a residency huh. at Cedars Sinai in uh, Los Angeles. And he specialized in internal medicine. He was a working doctor for ten years, mm. but he likened practicing medicine to an arranged marriage. That's his quote. And as soon as he knew that he was successful enough after the publication of the Kite Runner, uh, he left uh, practicing. Uh, but there was a year and a half where he had had all the success in the Kite Runner, but was still going to work every day as a as a full-on doctor that's so wow. strange to think about yeah you can imagine it's like yes you have bronchitis and you might have to do, take some bed rest may i recommend <laughs> this piece of literature more like doctor you're from afghanistan you'll never believe the book i just read <laughs> <laughs> exactly um wasn't uzadima Uwela also a doctor yeah have we had two doctors in a row i think we did yeah, well, didn't even think about that. Dr. City, uh, a quote from uh, Hosseini about this from an interview with Book Browse. Quote, I enjoyed practicing medicine and was always honored that patients put their trust in me to take care of them and their loved ones. But writing had always been my passion since childhood. Much as with Amir and the Kite Runner, I feel fortunate and privileged that writing, at least for the time being, is my livelihood. It is a dream realized. I have not found many similarities between my two crafts, except that in both, it helps to have at least some insight into human nature. Writers and doctors alike need to understand the motivation behind the things people say and do, and their fears, their hopes, and aspirations. In both professions, one needs to appreciate how socioeconomic background, family, culture, language, religion, and other factors shape a person, uh, whether a person is in an exam room or a character in a story. Mm. Sounds like he would be a good doctor. He, he seems like a really interesting dude. The uh, the Kite Runner came out in 2003, uh, and it was like immediately a big critical and commercial success, a lot of weeks in the bestseller list, and it raised his profile very quickly. It was also in 2003 that Hosseini returned to Afghanistan for the first time, and he has spent a lot of time there, though sadly that has changed a lot in the last few years, but all talk about that in a second. He's published two additional novels, A Thousand Splendid Sons and And the Mountains Echoed, um, which are both set in Afghanistan. Bailey, I would recommend you reading A Thousand Splendid Sons. A lot of people think it's better than The Kite Runner and like more sophisticated. Okay. And so I would, I, I think that you'd like that one. And the Mountains Echoed is also quite good, but if I had to rank them, I would probably put Thousand Splendid Sons, then The Kite Runner, then And the Mountains Echoed. Okay. You're a Hosseini head. You've read all three. It's there true. Well, he only has three. <laughs> it makes it pretty easy. <laughs> Still. Uh, he also does have a visual novel, which is like illustrated with um, watercolors, which was originally created as a VR experience. It's called Sea Prayer. Whoa. And it was published in 2018, inspired by the Syrian refugee crisis and the death of Alan Kurdi. And so that's something also you can check out. A film adaptation, which Bailey did not like, of The Kite Runner came out. But it has also been adapted into a Broadway play, which is currently planning a national tour. So you might be able to see that in a city near you. Interesting. He has also worked a lot with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, serving as a global envoy um, and establishing something called the Khaled Hosseini Foundation, which uh, works primarily to improve the lives of everyday folks in Afghanistan. However, as you probably know, the situation in Afghanistan has changed. The Taliban is back in power, and I don't know where this work is currently. He's done a lot of interviews recently just saying, like, I have to hope for the best, but I, he doesn't have the influence he used to have there. Mm. Uh, and finally, uh, he lives still in Northern California with his wife, Roya, and their two children. Hmm. Nice. Those are great facts, Andrew. I do think I'm going to give A Thousand Splendid Sons a shot because I think the potential's there. Well, yeah, I feel like you're being really harsh on a book you gave four stars to also. Yeah. I know. Four stars is a good rating. Okay, you should read it. It's called The Kite Runner by Khaled Husseini. Four stars. Four, four. Four stars. Um, Andrew, do you have any fun, you know, games, diversions for us? 
I do. <laughs> yes. Do you have any diversions for us? Diversions. Um, yes. No, I have one diversion. Would you like to play? Yes. Divert me, please. This is getting odd. It's called <laughs> When You Wish Upon a List. Ooh. Oh, how diverting. Um, we know that uh, the character in a uh, lead character in Toby's book, The Amulet of Samarkand, is a Ginny. And this doesn't come mm-hmm. into it in this book, but In the Mountains Echo has a framing device about a fairy tale about a gin, uh, which mm. uh, one of its most famous cultural instances is the genie in Aladdin who grants you three wishes. <laughs> so. Yes. Okay, okay. Okay. So. Jillian and I, who crafted this game together, have come up with the wishes of several famous literary characters. Ooh. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read their wishes, and they get ascendingly more specific. Uh, When you think you know who the Mm -hmm. character is, you can answer who you think it is by just yelling that name. But if Mm -hmm. you answer wrong, you don't get another chance to get it right. So, like, it's a a risk-reward. If you think you know who I'm talking about after two wishes, you could jump in and get it. But just know that if you do that and you don't wait for the third third one, which could get incredibly specific and help you out, you might be risking getting a wrong answer. Do you get different numbers of points depending on how many clues you got? No, we're not getting that specific because the risk reward is, you know, waiting for the the specificity of hints. So I have five questions here. So the first person to get three correct is going to be our winner. Um, Let's see if we can get all the way to the end. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. All right. Our first wish, a family. (laughs) I mean, there's so many people. (laughs) I was going to say this one is not specific to a lot of different characters. Um, Every child in children's literature who is an orphan. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, a way out of a criminal enterprise. Oliver Twist. (sighs) Toby got it. Toby, well done. Yes. Uh, One point Hmm. for Toby. The final wish was some more. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That may or may not have been the one that convinced us that this was a good game. (laughs) Very good. Very good. (laughs) That's a good one. All right. So one point to Toby. Well done. Thank you. I've never read Oliver Twist. (laughs) Nor have I, but I watched the wishbone. Mm -hmm. Next literary character. Wish one. To be human. Me. Uh, Little Mermaid. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that. No. I thought that there, I guess that is pretty specific, but still, I thought you guys were at least going to wait for the second clue. No, I, I did a risk. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, the next wishes were Prince to have not left and for her feet not to feel like they're walking on knives because I was going with the classic version, original version of the Little Mermaid. <laughs> the classic version, yeah. Which we just talked about the other day. Okay. Well, that's great. I'm very proud of you. Um, and you each have one. So this is shaping up to be a good match. Number three, a quiet life. Mm. His uncle not to be weird. Mm. Mm-mm. To drop the ring in the fires of Mount Doom. Frodo Baggins. <laughs> Bailey gets the win there. No. <laughs> oh, so His close. uncle not to be weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Bailey gets the win there. Well done. So Bailey has the lead two to one. This is a big one. Can we force a game five here? And our first wish is one we've heard before. A family. (laughs) 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 To be top of the class. Hmm. Anne of Green Gables. That is right. Toby is right. And Shirley is our our win here. The last one was to not be called carrots. I was going to say to have brown hair. (laughs) (laughs) Anything but that foul, disgusting red hair. (laughs) To not be a coward and to not have red hair. So, (laughs) great. We're going to game five. It all comes down to this. Sweet. Number one, to be left alone. Mm. To take over his adoptive father's estate. Um, um, Heathcliff. 
It's me. It's Kathy. Bailey's oh. one. It is Heathcliff. The last wish was for the ghost of Kathy no. to haunt him always. And Bailey has taken the victory. Heathcliff. And when you wish upon a list, congratulations. That was a well-balanced, well-poised fight. Yeah. It's because I haven't read Wuthering Heights. I've only heard the song. Well, I figured once we got to the ghost of Kathy to haunt him always, you might have figured it out. (laughs) I do think if if it had been Kathy and you just said, it's me, I probably would have gotten it. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. fair. But great match, y'all. That was a fun game. I might try to make games like that more in the future. I loved it. Great job. Yeah. Dylan, it's time for you to shine. It's time for you to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Yes, The Choosening. <laughs> Toby, where are you recording again? The closet. No, but what state? Uh, Nebraska today. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's California. Oh, I thought you were with Andrew because you have number 19. Here is New York by Eb White. It's e- Just kidding, E.B. White. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'm very excited for this one. Um, For those of you who may not know, E.B. White is the author of the beloved children's book, Charlotte's Web, but he is also a noted literary stylist. Um, And Here's New York is supposed to be a kind of a demonstration of his style. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very intrigued to read it. Have you guys read it? No. Uh, No, but he's also good at grammar, hence shrunk and white guide. Yes. uh, The elements of style is what Bailey is referring to. Well, I mean, it won't be New York because Bailey might have to go travel to Europe to see some of these. Number seven, Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. This is another one that kind of passed me by. I kind of know the cover more than what it's about. It's like, the, I think it's the Amalfi Coastander of Italy. Hey, I've been there. Yeah. And um, I think it's like a thriller um, that it's like female driven. However, Jess Walter's a man, the author. So I'm excited. I think this is a favorite. Cool. So in two weeks on the podcast, the next episode is our year-end awards, the bookend awards. You got to tune in for it, guys. It's going to be great. I already know. We haven't recorded it. What's everyone's going to wear? Ooh, <laughs> probably a sweatshirt. Uh, basketball shorts and a long sleeve tee. I was going to say no <laughs> pants and a chewed upon hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then our first podcast of 2023 will be me covering Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter and Andrew's reading Oligarchy by Scarlett Thomas. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you want to help us find more listeners, a great way to do that is to give us a rating and review in your podcatcher of choice, particularly Apple Podcasts. You can give us five stars. It'll It'll give you access to all the magic of the world and you'll get little demons to do uh, your bidding for you, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have a friend, even if you have to summon him or her in a pentagram, but probably him because that book is about boys, um, <laughs> tell that boy about uh, about our podcast. Word of mouth um, really helps us spread the word and you really believe it when it's coming from someone screaming at you from inside a pentagram. True, true. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro songs. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. books.